It's Thursday, April 13th, 2023, and welcome back to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. I'm not the only fellow podcasting these days. I recommend you go to our website, which is hoover.org. Uh, go to the tab at the top of the homepage. It says commentary. Head over to where it says multimedia. And under the guise of audio podcast, you will find no less than 17 in all, including one with a rather curious title of Saints, Sinners, and Salvageables. That was a series of podcasts dedicated to election integrity that were done last summer and fall. The gentleman who is the voice of those podcasts, Ben Ginsburg, joins us today for an early preview of the 2024 election. About my friend Ben. Ben Ginsburg is the Hoover Institution's Volcker Family Visiting Fellow and a nationally recognized political law advocate. Ben's past clientele reads like a who's who of American elections for the past six presidential presidential nominees. I'll have to find out who those two are. I think I know who one of them is, but I'm curious who the other one is. is. Here at the Hoover Institution, Ben's involved in several projects involving election integrity, which we'll also discuss today. Ben, thanks for coming on the show. Bill, thanks for having me. Great to be here. So I wanted to have you here in the middle of April, Ben, because I think this is uh, what I like to call the quiet before the storm in terms of the field actually taking shape. There was news on this front this week. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott uh, launched a presidential exploratory committee. Ben, you're a lawyer. I'm not. You could probably better explain what the exploratory committee is, but I think it's a symbol. It allows you to run a campaign. You can pay for polling. You can pay for travel expenses without formally announcing. So you're you're a quasi-presidential candidate, I guess the best way to put it. If we assume Scott is in the race, that makes five candidates um, in all. Uh, former President Donald Trump announced on November 16th of last year. Former South Carolina Governor, UN Ambassador Nikki Haley jumped in on Valentine's Day. Uh, Anti-woke author, businessman Vivek Ramaswamy uh, jumped in the race a week later on February 21st. Asa Hutchinson, the former governor of Arkansas, uh, took a plunge on April the 2nd. Now Tim Scott may be probably running as well. So, Ben, this sounds like a pretty scant field, but always good, to go, always good to go back in our history and do a little sleuthing. And here's what I found. If you go back to 2015, Ben, and the last time Republicans had an open presidential race, no incumbent, uh, on this day, April 13th, 2015, Marco Rubio announced his candidacy, making him at the time the third candidate. Ted Cruz had declared on March 23rd, Rand Paul on April the 7th. Um, Things then got busy in May. Ben Carson, Carly Fiorina, Mike Huckabee, Rick Santorum, and George Pataki all announced in May. June, things got even busier, Ben. Lindsey Graham, Rick Perry, uh, Jeb Bush, Trump, uh, Bobby Jindal, and Chris Christie all jumped in in June. Scott Walker and John Kasich jumped in in July. The point of this all, Ben, you ended up having 16 candidates in addition to Donald Trump. So let's, let's start with a little Vegas odds making here, Ben. I'm not going to put you on the spot in predicting how many Serious Republicans, not including gadflies, but how many serious Republicans to run? But let's do it a different way. Let's do over under. Um, simply with the start with this question. Well, oh, give me an over under, Ben. On if I put sixteen as the as the number, under, but not by much. Okay, now let's make it a little tricky. How about ten as the over under? Over, over ten. Yeah, oh yeah. Okay, I want you to uh, do a little habeas corpus here. I want you to produce the bodies here. So. If we have five, as I mentioned already, uh, I will give you two mics. I'll give you uh, Mike Pence and Mike Pompeo. Take them both. Seven. Uh, I'll give you John Bolton. That's eight. Yep. Uh, we can argue about if he's really a serious candidate or not, but there's a there's a voice out there for him. That's eight candidates right now. Liz Cheney. Maybe. Maybe. Governors. I count uh, three three governors: Chris Sununu. 
uh, Christy Nome and Glenn Yunkin as possibilities. Give you all those. Two okay. out of those three. Two of those three. And then finally, Ron DeSantis, Florida, Governor of Florida. Yep. And we put him in there for purposes of this. Okay. And so- then there'll be, I mean, there are going to be some people who are not in your crazy gadfly territory, although they seem like long shots. People like maybe Will Hurd of Texas, uh-huh. Mike Rogers, former House Intelligence Chair from Michigan. Uh, maybe uh, the mayor of Miami, Mayor Suarez, uh, right. is making noises about jumping in. So all in all, you'll you'll have a robust, I think, dozen candidates in the field. So what's in it for some of these candidates who we, if we don't call them gadflies or we don't call them, you know, kind of front of the pack, the kind of tweeters, what, what are they getting out of it, Ben? Well, I think they, they get out of it. So it's different for different people. Right. Any number of them think it is the right thing to do and honestly believe they have a chance because they bring something unique to the to the program. Uh, some of them have particular points of view that they feel deeply about that they want to uh, get into the mix. Mayor Suarez would probably, for example, uh, feel that way about uh, about representing the Hispanic vote in the mm-hmm. Republican primary. Um, some of them see great TV contracts at the end of the rainbow, and that would not be without precedent. Mm-hmm. Full disclosure, by the way, you are a TV guy yourself. You do commentary from time to time on CNN. That is true. I have never run for president, nor so been ben, tempted to. Ben, what's the first cycle that you got involved in? Uh, the first presidential cycle uh, would really go back to uh, 1992, when I was counsel of the Republican National Committee, uh-huh. uh, and uh, and George H.W. Bush was seeking re-election. Okay. Well, I happen to know that campaign pretty well, Ben, because I worked on that campaign. Indeed. A young Bill Whalen. <laughs> Bill Whalen aged a bit during that campaign cycle. <laughs> I wanted to be a White House speechwriter, and this was my ticket to being a White House speechwriter. I had it all elaborately planned out. I'd work like a dog on the campaign, get noticed, I'd get rewarded, maybe get a speechwriting spot in a cabinet position, do that well for a couple of years. And the last year or two of the White House, play the big house. But didn't work out because of a guy named George, uh, a guy named Bill Clinton. Yeah, things things get in the way of, uh, of great career moves. But yours was a, a fine, logical, well out, well thought out career path. Yeah. The other funny thing about the '92 campaign, Ben, that people should know: if you go to any kind of Bush reunion, which brings in you know people from past campaigns, once you tell them that you worked on the '92 campaign, the rather meter ones will do an L on their forehead because this <laughs> is this is the only Bush campaign of father or son that actually managed to lose in November. Yeah, they it gets taken pretty uh, personally. Yeah. Well, I asked you about uh, how far you go back for this question. We, you know, we're looking at this field and we're looking at some serious candidates, some not so serious candidates. A lot of questions kind of, you know, surfacing underneath this as for various Republicans, what they're running on. And the question, Ben, has it always been like this or is Donald Trump just absolutely turned over the apple cart? Well, Donald Trump has certainly affected a lot of things that have never been affected before in a Republican primary. We've had front runners before and obvious front runners, George W. Bush in 2000, uh, John McCain in 2008. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've never had a front runner who's been defeated in the previous election, right. uh, presidential election, and whose candidates actually did poorly for the Republican Party in the midterms of 2022 and 2018. But he is such an overwhelming figure that 
Uh, there are a lot of campaigns who actually tactically should probably have announced already, mm-hmm. and they're holding back uh, because there's no point in jumping into the propeller of Trump rhetoric right now. Right. Uh, is that code language for Ron DeSantis? Yeah, well, Ron DeSantis, I think, has a better, more time-honored reason, mm-hmm. which is governors do need to wait till the end of their legislative sessions right. to jump in. That's a, that's a solid reason to wait, and I think, he is, uh, I think he is wise to do that for that reason. In fact, I think if you go back to uh, 1999, I think uh, George W. got in in June of 99. Yeah, he, oh. he, he waited. Uh, our, our mutual former boss, Pete Wilson, waited until the right time in the, the never-ending California legislative cycle to jump in. Right. There's a consideration of Scott Walker in mm-hmm. 2016, Chris Christie, many other governors. Right. Well, let's focus on DeSantis for a minute. Um, one thing people probably don't know about Ron DeSantis, this is a very young man. He turns 45 in September. Yes. And there's always, with all presidential candidates, Ben, there's the question of now or later. Um, and there's no kind of you know set rule on when to go. Um, we can point you to, for example, I can point you to uh, Mario Cuomo. Mario Cuomo flirted with it in 1988 and passed on it. And then 1992, he might recall, he took it to a just ridiculous extent. He waited until the very last hour, literally, to go up to New Hampshire to file papers. There was a plane waiting in Albany to take him up there. They finally decided no. Two years later, he was out of a job. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure uh, Ron DeSantis is the same sort of uh, uh, mental makeup as Mario Cuomo. Right. Uh, but, but you know, you, you mentioned his age, and that's a really salient point. Uh, if he goes in against Donald Trump, and Donald Trump's 30% of the Republican Party is as adamantly in favor of Donald Trump as it is now, mm-hmm. Ron DeSantis has alienated those people. So there's got to be at least a little bit of thought, the virtue of doing everything he's doing now, running really hard in this period, getting on Donald Trump's radar screen, making Trumpites worry about him. And then the last minute saying, you know what, Donald Trump's such a great guy, I'm for him. And then Ryan DeSantis, uh, when he runs for president at the age of 49, stands to be a real favorite of the Trump base in addition to others he can bring. Yeah, um, I'm glad you mentioned that because essentially I was watching Fox News this morning. I saw no less than three ads paid for by Trump's people bashing Ron DeSantis. They're going after him on Social Security, of all things. But here's a question, Ben. Can DeSantis pull it back at this point? Because he, look, he has been around the country earlier this year promoting his book. And one way that people go back to presidential campaigns is they they sell their book as a preview of coming attractions. Um, he has an organization kind of in place. I understand a lot of donors he's talked to, raised a bunch of money. There are people waiting for him to go. At Rollins, speaking of Fox News, he's on Fox News doing ads saying, <laughs> run, run, run. So you know, it's like the missile's ready to launch. But can you pull back if you're that close to running? And can he, can he really do it credibly in terms of just not saying, I don't think I can beat Donald Trump? How, how does he really kind of you know, craft an effective message saying that now's not the time for me? He does have the ability as governor of Florida to propose all sorts of model legislation. Right. He does have the ability to say Donald Trump is a persecuted man right now. And I think that's wrong. And on behalf of all Americans, I'm standing up against the deep state that's going after um, it's going after Donald Trump. 
Uh, I think there are a number of ways to do it, do it gracefully. Uh, part of that would be uh, working on the language that Donald Trump would use to praise him to the, to the high holy heaven uh, and uh, setting him up for a much clearer approach in, uh, in, in 2028. Now, I, I tend to agree with you that he has gone to great lengths right now and it would not be a perfect pivot. Um, but I think it's, I, I think you can never completely rule it out. Yeah, uh, it just, it would be awkward, it seems to be, Ben, for him to pull back because donors who are looking at him thinking he's the best chance to stop Trump, they might very well remember him not running if there's a very bad Republican cycle in 2024, which I want to get to later in this podcast. Yeah, I, I mean, I think all of that is true, but I yeah. think that the uh, the way candidates approach the the last steps before they go hurtling off the cliff mm -hmm. is different for all of us. And there are a lot of considerations. So in in I, I believe that a presidential candidate's mind is not firmly made up until they actually take that step. And as we've seen in candidates withdrawing once they're in the race, uh, <laughs> you, you do get mulligan. So one thing our listeners should know is that uh, Ben and I spent uh, time last summer uh, doing a round of interviews with Republican consultants. Uh, this is part of a larger endeavor at the Hoover Institution run by uh, uh, Dave Brady and Doug Rivers, two very renowned political scientists, which is to just look at the question of the Republican existence and what it is that Republican candidates should be talking about and what it is Republican voters looking for. And Ben, uh, it seemed to me that there is one very obvious thing coming out of those interviews that Donald Trump has a hold on this primary in ways that people perhaps can't appreciate. It's not a it's not a majority hold, but it's just he is clinging. I think you mentioned a minute ago this hard and fast 30 percent that just won't go away. And I'm kind of puzzled by it in some regards. I mean, especially, you know, those Trump followers who just believe in him uh, and he just cannot do any wrong. You know, for all the bombast, remember the line he said about he could walk down, what, Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and get away with it? That seems to be the case with those followers to whom he just can do no wrong. Yeah, it does. It is. He, he is he is clearly a hero to his followers, and they are not going to brook any uh, real criticism. Of them. That is a significant chunk of the Republican Party primary electorate. And it's based on really a, a sort of personality uh, attraction he has for voters. It's not based on the track record of how successful his endorsed candidates do, because that's mixed at best. Uh, it really is a, um, it really is a uh, devotion to him uh, as part of a cult of personality. Yeah, it's just as a curious relationship. I'm not privy to the nature of the Ginsburg marriage, for example, but I suspect if you came home to the lovely and charming Mrs. Ginsburg and said, oh, by the way, honey, while you were uh, nursing our young child, I just had <laughs> just, you know, had sex with a porn star. I think you would yeah, have been in trouble. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it have gone well? Right. Nor your followers as well. Um, Trump has also been in the news, Ben, uh, this week, uh, announced that he's filed a lawsuit in Southern Florida court against his former attorney, Michael Cohen, demanding $500 million in damages. And let me read you a line from this quote, an action arising from his multiple breaches of fiduciary duty, unjust enrichment, conversion and breaches of contract by virtue of past services, Trump's employee and attorney. You're not a, uh, this is not your exact field of legal expertise, Ben, but what's Donald Trump doing here? Well, I think this is more for performance art 
than mm -hmm. anything else. In other words, it is a way to say publicly that everything Michael Cohen has said about him in terms of the New York indictment, the aforementioned porn star, is nonsense and self-serving for Michael Cohen. Um, whether or not there's a grain of truth in those assertions about Michael Cohen, uh, you know, this is a process is the penalty sort of a suit. And so uh, Michael Cohen's going to have to pay a lot of money in legal fees and go through the trauma and uh, time of responding to this lawsuit. It's not a really pleasant way to spend money. Mm -hmm. Then I think I saw Ben where Trump was on a plane yesterday to New York to um, give testimony or take part in, I think, a $250 million case involving some aspect of fraud related to a Trump endeavor. Then, of course, there's a situation in Manhattan. So question for you. Um, can he effectively run for president while he has all these legal distractions around him? I'm of mixed minds here. On the one hand, it's just a relentless kind of wave of bad news in terms of having to go to court. It's just a bad look for a candidate. On the other hand, it's not like he needs the attention. Not like he has, not like he has to be, need to be in Iowa, New Hampshire, pressing the flesh that much because he's already known entity there. Yeah, I, I, I think you have to take note of Donald Trump as a unique figure. There's no legal bar on him running for office if he's under indictment or even if he's uh, convicted for either of the New York actions. Mm -hmm. So he can do it. I mean, I think what we've seen so far is that even his opponents or potential opponents in the presidential race have laid off criticizing him and, in fact, have trained their fire on the Manhattan district attorney who brought the cases. It's, it's really that indictment has really had the effect of, of kind of freezing the Republican field with the exception of Tim Scott. But, you know, I think that Donald Trump, Trump and given the devotion of his followers, can actually go ahead and, and run a Republican primary campaign uh, while he's facing all this legal uh, uh, trauma. Um, I think it's real different for a general election campaign because how this is playing with his devout 30% Republican base, he needs to win the primary. Mm -hmm. Not playing the same way with suburban Republican-leaning voters who really will spell the difference in the very few battleground states that, that will be up in 2020. Glad you mentioned that because uh, so as a Quinnipiac poll that came out the other day, Ben, it showed 90 percent of Republicans think that the indictment's political. So there you are. It's uh, it's blanket across Republicans. Yeah. ABC came out with the poll. Meanwhile, Ben, which asked for uh, Trump's approval rating and Biden's approval rating, 25 percent approval rating for Trump, 34 percent for Joe Biden. This shapes up as perhaps the <laughs> grimmest, the grimmest of grimmest choices in a, in a 24 election if they are the two respective nominees. Yeah, that's it, it's not a great choice. Uh, according to what people's feelings are. Mm -hmm. But then again, they're both of those candidates, if you were to put your money down right now, will right. make it through their respective party primaries in a little over a year from now. Right. And, uh, you know, it, at that point, it becomes much more of a binary choice. Yeah. Uh, let's go back to DeSantis for a second, uh, since you mentioned the um, suburban voters here. Um, explain to me what you think he's up to on abortion. Ben, because he is, as I understand, he is poised to sign a bill which would create a six-week uh, ban 
in Florida. At last year, he signed one that was a 15-week ban. Uh, you look around at other Republican candidates, Glenn Youngkin, after the Dobbs decision, he was about the first prominent Republican to come out of a shoot with a policy, and his proposal was a 15-week ban. Um, Tim Scott was campaigning in New Hampshire. He was visiting New Hampshire. I can't say he was campaigning. He was visiting New Hampshire uh, earlier today. He was asked if he would do a 20-week ban. He said he would sign that. I'm curious as to what um, why DeSantis would do a six-week ban when 15 to 20 seems more the sweet spot, and especially a ban after that Wisconsin Supreme Court race, which was driven in large part by abortion. I believe that Ron DeSantis is trying to out-Trump Trump for mm-hmm. the deeply conservative Republican base. I think he's also got some considerations in the makeup of the Florida legislature, mm-hmm. which is a deeply, deeply conservative um, majority and, and virtually a supermajority of Republicans. And I think he um, his strategy seems to be to be the most conservative, most uh, Trump-like non-Trump. Uh, Mm-hmm. Well put. Um, let's talk now a little bit about the GOP itself, Ben. Um, so I am a old-time Washington person, and I remember back in the day when going to the Republican National Committee uh, building just on Capitol Hill, not too far from the Grand Building itself. It's like going to the Temple of Zeus. It was where the power structure laid. And to go to the Capitol Hill Club to see movers and shakers, this was the Republican establishment, Ben, plain and simple. Uh, tell me what the Republican establishment is today. Is the establishment, is it Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy? Is it party elders like George W. Bush? If a candidate like Donald Trump or someone's going to bash the establishment, who are they bashing? Really good question. I had the honor of working in that building for six years, Mm -hmm. both at the Republican Congressional Committee and the Republican National Committee. Uh, It was a different place back then. So I think you have a really hard time defining who the Republican establishment is today. Mm-hmm. Certainly, you, you know, you can make a case for the legislative leadership, right. but it doesn't seem that the legislative leadership is really driving the train. That's Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. The Republican National Committee is very Trump heavy these days. And in point of fact, I'm not sure there is Republican establishment these days. Uh, I think uh, ever since ever since McCain-Feingold went into effect in the 2004 election, it changed the not only the money dynamics of the National Party Committee, but because the money dynamics uh, really changed in the state party, mm-hmm. the makeup of the National Committee, which you would think of in part as the establishment, went from people who had actually run campaigns to people who were more uh, fundraisers and, you know, interested in politics. If you want an example of what I mean, go to the Republican National Committee website and look at the resolutions that the Republican National Committee passes twice a year at its meetings. They are, you know, doing things about foreign policy and monetary policy and social policy. And uh, I can promise you from my experience in the cloakrooms of both the House and the Senate, the first thing on the minds of Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy is, gee, what do the members of the National Committee think about this bill we're about to vote on? So uh, I think whatever you believe the establishment might be, it is much more diffuse 
than it was uh, 20 years ago, even 15 years ago. And it, it, it is why Donald Trump, as truly a large figure, has been able to so dominate the party so that uh, the National Committee is sort of a tool of his. And the legislative leadership, including governors in the states and state legislatures, mm-hmm. are not taking him on on either policy positions or political judgments that he's making, which seemed to be hurting the party in election. There's another way to pose this question, Ben, and that's to go back even before our time. And that's to go back to um, the late Robert Taft, the senator from Ohio, uh, famous isolationist. Robert Taft's nickname was Mr. Republican. So the question, Ben, in 2023, is there a Mr. Republican or a Ms. Republican out there? Well, it's Donald Trump. Well, let's build on that, because if I ask you this question of Democrats, Mr. Democrat would be who? Let's say Barack Obama. Well, I'd say Joe Biden since he's sitting in the White House. Well, but yeah, but I'd probably say Obama because Biden is, look, Biden's kind of a rental at the end of the day. I mean, he may run for a second term, but, you know, Obama's Obama. I mean, it's very, if you saw the uh, the uh, the NCAA women's title game uh, and the flap that ensued after that, uh, where Joe Biden wanted to invite both teams uh, to the White House, bad move, uh, First Lady. Uh, an LSU player said, I'll go to the White House to only to see the real president, Barack Obama. Yeah, um, he, he, he is that galvanizing figure. But you know, it's different between him and, and Robert Tapp. Robert Tapp was actually deeply involved in party politics right. during his tenure. I, I'm not sure that Barack Obama is really calling up the state chairs of uh, of the target states on the Okay, so the choice is either go around the world and give speeches at great prices and dine in great restaurants and hang out in wonderful vacation Make places. movies. Make yeah. movies. Make movies and podcasts or get on the phone and talk to party chairs. Gee, which do you think he's doing? Yeah, I'm not, I, it's hard to disagree with the judge. Speaking of Roberts, not Taft, Robert Kennedy. So he is running against Joe Biden. <laughs> yes. You're laughing. I am laughing. Uh, You know, you were talking about vanity candidates in the Republican field. Mm -hmm. It's uh, good to see Democrats have some, too. Yeah. But going back to 92, Ben, which uh, was problematic for George H.W. Bush because he had to deal with Pat Buchanan, who was kind of a precursor to Donald Trump in many ways. Um, Is there room in that field for somebody to make trouble if they so chose? I mean, Bernie Sanders, maybe, or someone like that. But is there could somebody get in and actually give Biden a hard time? Uh, I think the answer is yes, but he's done a pretty good job of being close enough to the progressive wing of his party, who are the ones who might go in and and, uh, give him the most trouble. So uh, the candidate to represent that progressive wing is not Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And I'm not sure we could put our finger on who that individual is. Yeah, I think, by the way, Bobby Kennedy uh, is a convicted felon. I think he was convicted of a, of a, a felony heroin charge. Uh, and I don't know how many times you've been asked this question, Ben, but I'm getting tired of asking it. Can somebody who's under indictment run for president and can a felon serve as president? Well, the answer is, yeah, they can. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. That'll be $500. <laughs> <laughs> what? It was only three minutes of work? Hey, legal consulting. You pay by the hour, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Tim Scott. So I mentioned Tim Scott is in New Hampshire. Uh, let me read you something that Scott said when he announced his exploratory committee, Ben, quote, I bear witness to what America can do for anyone, what she's done for me, what we must rise, but we must rise up to the challenges of our time. This is a fight we must win. And this is it. This will, this will take faith, faith in God. Um, this is a upbeat fellow. This is somebody who talks about his family's experience. He talks about his father uh, being illiterate. He talks about his connection to slavery, but he is running Ben an aspirational campaign at the end of the day. And that's not something you could say of Donald Trump. And I don't think it's something you could say of DeSantis if he jumps in because he'll run very strong against wokeism and what he's doing in Florida. Is there room in today's Republican Party, Ben, for an aspirational candidate? It's a little hard to see the lane that Tim Scott would have to, um, would, would need to pick up with that message. Yeah. So I believe that there are uh, Republican voters who are not enamored with the Trump DeSantis brand of republicanism. Mm -hmm. First of all, they're few and far between. And second of all, I'm not sure how you how Tim Scott with that message actually draws a contrast on the things that matter to people without criticizing Trump and or DeSantis. And so far he has shown no uh, no inclination to do any challenging. Mm -hmm. The, the, the other thing to remember about the Republican presidential nomination, whether you're talking about Tim Scott or Rand, Ron DeSantis or anyone else, is this. The rules for how the delegates are selected in the state will be done uh, really by the beginning of July. And they have to be officially into the Republican National Committee by the end of September. That means that the rules are getting locked in now. And Donald Trump has a tremendous advantage in that he is, by all, by all uh, bits of information, the only candidate with a really broad enough uh, organization to be talking to the state parties as they go about selecting their methods. He is in the driver's seat with that 30%. Because in a winner-take-all primary, all you need is 30% to win in a multi-candidate field. Right. Could you, uh, uh, take a mo could you take a moment, Ben, and explain how the delegate uh, allotment works, how uh, it plays out in the early states in uh, January, February, and then how it changes come March and April, May, and June? Well, the Republican National Committee has set windows for when primaries, conventions, and certain kinds of primaries can take place mm -hmm. so that... Uh, under the rules, there is a favored four that will go in February, which right. is Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina and Nevada. Mm -hmm. And their method of doing things is pretty much set with the caveat of Iowa's got some issues going on about whether they're going to uh, be able to, to stay a caucus, which I think they will. Mm -hmm. So those four will go. Right. Then the RNC says that from the first Tuesday in March through the third Tuesday in March, uh, a state cannot be winner take all. Right. So that it can be proportional statewide, proportional by congressional district, or it can be a convention or, or, and or a caucus. Mm -hmm. After, I think it's March 14th this year or next year, states can be winner take all. If you're Donald Trump, 
winner take all is good, right? Because you've got your 30%. Conventions are probably even better because uh, a convention um, has a sort of self selecting crew of a few thousand people who determine who the delegates are. So, right now, Donald Trump is the the lone candidate that I see having a 50 state organization to be able to impact this, however it's best for him in each state, has the best relationships with the state parties. Mm -hmm. And it's gonna be a little late for the candidates like Tim Scott or Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley to be able to go into the individual states to impact the type of delegate selection process they have. Okay. And this is not just a, you just can't go in and spend money to make this happen, right? No, you need to convince the members of your, some places it's the, the state chair and some places it's the, uh, it's the county chairs and some people it's a state executive committee. In some states, it's even a convention. So it is not just a, Hi, hello, it's me. I've got the best message. Please give me my set of rules. Final question, Ben, then I want to shift over to what you're doing at Hoover and some non-Hoover projects as well. Um, and that is uh, the news out uh, yesterday. I believe that Fox News will be hosting the first Republican debate in August in Milwaukee, Milwaukee, the site of the 2024 uh, Republican National Convention. No date has been assigned to this, Ben, but there are questions as to some of the rules of the road for this uh, debate, including the uh, the purity, the pledge question. If you participate, do you have to pledge to support the nominee? What do you, what do you think of these kinds of requirements? Well, I think it's more I think it's more show than go mm -hmm. because there is no enforcement mechanism behind it. And so there will be a lot of bargaining back and forth about whether you have to sign that pledge. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're the chair of the Republican National Committee or any Republican candidate not named Trump, you probably absolutely want this sort of showy pledge, right? right? Because the mortal fear of the RNC and many of Republicans is that Donald Trump goes and becomes a third party, which would almost sure uh, a Democrat being elected, but might play to Trump. And I think the idea of a pledge is um, a situation where Trump can sort of exhibit that he is the leader of the Republican Party just by jerking Rona, uh, Romney McDaniels around on, on whether there's a pledge or not. Trump certainly jerked Reince Priebus around in 2016 or 2015 when he tried to impose a pledge. Right. Uh, so uh, I, 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 think, I think you should pop some popcorn and watch the show. Sounds good. And you and I were talking uh, not too long ago about the idea of a Trump third party candidacy and what it would look like. And I think what we came down to the conclusion was people are mistaken if they think it would be a 50 state effort, but he could do considerable damage if he focused on just a handful of swing states. Yep, he really could. Uh, you know, the, the map in 2024 is shaping up one to be where there are, you know, probably four swing states for sure. And maybe a couple others that could end up being contested. But by and large, once you get past Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, not clear what the, the 
gettable, gettable states. Yeah. So Donald Trump going into any very Republican state where he might win a nomination would mess up that electoral college, electoral college um, calculation a great deal. So he's got he's got some power to be able to to do that. And hey, guess what, Bill? Even if he signed that pledge, that loyalty pledge, he could still become a third party candidate. There, there's no enforcement. He could. Uh, I would encourage our listeners to go to a website called 272win.com. That's 270-T-O-Win.com. Ben's nodding his head. That's because they have a really cool interactive map. And you can click on it. You can change states from red to blue and vice versa and leave them blank if you want to. And if you look at that, Ben, what you find is that, uh, let's see, the last race was 306 to 232. Um, after redistricting, it's now, if everything were the same in 2024 and 2020, it would be a um, 303 uh, count for Joe Biden. But if you flip Georgia and Arizona and Wisconsin, Ben, I believe that delivers uh, the election to the Republican candidate. Yep, it sure that, does. It's that simple. That's why That's why this is really on a knife set. And, and people should go to that site. You too can be a wily political operative and Second guess what all the campaigns are doing strategically. Yeah. By the way, Ben, if you do flip those three states, you know what number you get? You get 271 to 266. Does that sound familiar to you? It does sound a little bit familiar, hauntingly familiar. Why do you say that? Oh, echoes of 2000 in my head. So do you ever wake up in the middle of the night reliving the, the 2000 Florida recount or? <laughs> our, our listeners should know that Ben was on the legal team for the Bush campaign, and he he lost considerable quality time in Florida and uh, Tallahassee fighting the fight. Yeah, you haven't lived till you've been in Tallahassee in late November and early December. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, it was it was really um, really quite something. Hope you know, I I have mixed feelings about it. It was such a remarkable experience working with such a remarkable group of. Of people, including like the best set of lawyers I any any of us have ever worked for before or since, yeah. and um, that's an experience you sort of want to share with people. But then again, boy, nobody wants to, and the country certainly doesn't want to have to go through that trauma. I think HBO did a movie on it, didn't they? Was it called like Recount or something like that? It was. Uh huh. Did somebody play Ben Ginsburg? Yeah. Um, let me think. I believe it was George Clooney. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Maybe not so much. Maybe it was a short, bald, beardy guy with glasses named Bob Balvin. Was a terrific actor. Yeah, so it's both the fear and the and the dread. If you ever get immortalized on film, it's please, please choose a handsome man. <laughs> there, there were others they could have chosen. Yes. Um, so that's a good segue into talking about what you're doing, Hoover, right now, Ben. So two things I'd like you to discuss. First of all. Um, the preservation of the institution of voting project that you're a part of. Tell, tell us what that's all about. Well, this is part of uh, Director Rice's uh, overall project on the preservation of American institutions. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what is true is that so many norms uh, have been stretched over the past couple of decades, and especially in the last few years, mm -hmm. that uh, she's, she's assembled a remarkable group of scholars to look at different institutions. Uh, I am honored to be working on the voting project in which uh, we will be looking at some of what I think are the myths that contribute so heavily to our polarization these days. Uh, the fraud 
suppression narrative that the political parties use has really kind of stoked polarization. I think the examples of fraud that Republicans cite is absolutely as uh, illusory as the number of suppression incidents that the Democrats cite. Yet there's a huge get out the vote mechanism uh, based on fraud versus suppression that does nothing but polarize us further and cause people to lack faith in, uh, in the results of elections. Uh, I think there are some myths involving turnout. Uh, Republicans got more congressional votes in 2022, yet uh, we believe that, that we are better off in low turnout elections. Democrats yep. have won low turnout elections, yet they believe they should throw away the safeguards on voting and let everybody vote. So there is some uh, scholarly research to be done to, to deal with, um, with those issues. You're also looking better at post-election vote tabulation, which is something near and dear to those of us in California where it takes yeah. 30 days to, to count the votes. Yeah, that's exactly right, Bill. Uh, you know, the, the whole idea of having to wait so long to get election, election results yeah. has proven to be sort of the the devil's workshop or the pe- right. Petri dish for uh, the election denial virus. And, you know, states like Florida and Georgia uh, can get their results in on election night. Right. And states like California and really Arizona take a real long time. And there are things that can be done on the front end to process ballots sooner, not count them, just see which ones are eligible to be counted on election day. Mm -hmm. And there are other states like California that believe they need to hold open the receipt of ballots till long after election day, which means you can't get final results. So uh, that too needs some some research to see uh, if it is really worthwhile to hold off being able to, to say who won a state. I think also worth looking to, Ben, uh, in terms of California versus uh, other states, is California gives everybody a ballot. And then secondly, we do mail voting in California. Yep. And mail voting is interesting because mail voting started as a novelty in California. Mail voting used to be a lifestyle choice, but not a lifestyle choice. It used to be a necessity for people. You do it basically if you're traveling abroad and couldn't be there to vote. But in California now, it's become just another part of the lifestyle. You get your ballot. There it sits on your table. And unfortunately, a lot of Californians wait until the very last second to hand in their mail ballot, even if they know who they're going to vote for. And this adds to the problem in California, Bev, where not only does it take a long time to count the votes, but the numbers start dancing. And Republicans complain the numbers dance on Democrats' failures. So they get into arguments about you know, ballot harvesting and fraud and so forth. But it just all contributes to one problem, which is the erosion of confidence. Yeah, it really does. And there are fixes. And it should be an area where the two parties can actually compromise uh, in the name of providing greater credibility to um, to our election. You would think, but Ben, in a state like California, where Democrats outnumber Republicans two to one among registered voters, I'm not sure if I'm a Democrat, I'm going to give up the idea of giving every voter a ballot. You know, the thing about giving every voter a ballot, I, I, I understand the policy that in many states, of giving every voter an application for an absentee ballot right. and letting them return it and verify that they're a voter. Uh, I think giving every voter uh, 
an, an absentee ballot means that there are live ballots that do not have any sort of a chain of custody about them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that that uh, stands to be a real problem for a candidate of either party who wins a very close election because there are just elements of proving that the voters ballot when you've given universal ballots to everyone mm-hmm. that would prove really, really difficult in a crisis situation. Mm-hmm. And then you're working on with Bruce Kane, who's a Stanford political scientist. He's also director of the Bill Lane Center for the American West at Stanford. Uh, this is looking at uh, causes of a crisis of confidence in U.S. elections and solutions for getting through it. Yeah. And Michael Boskin, uh, another Hoover senior fellow, yes. is, uh, is, is in charge of the, the broader project. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're looking specifically at... Uh, how to, what provisions can be put in laws to increase confidence in elections and how uh, we might be able to get that through. We're very interested in doing survey and focus group work through uh, the aforementioned uh, Dave Brady and Doug Rivers mm-hmm. on voter attitudes about a number of these changes, focus groups with um, organizations of political operatives to uh, to sort of get their sense of what's needed and and what might work, and uh, it's a, it's an exciting area to take a look at because again there are preconceived notions that are part of the practices now, and if you could sort of show that the preconceived notions are not accurate, there may be a way to come to better solutions. I'd be really curious, Ben, to see when we talk about a crisis in confidence, who exactly is lacking confidence? Is it is it one party more so than the other? And is that a function of winning and losing elections? Is it a gender issue? Is it a race? Is it a um, you know a, an identity issue? Is it a generational issue? I'd just be very curious as to who who really lacks confidence here. Yeah, I think, and that's part of what we want to look at. Although yeah. our working assumption on that is that it. Uh, it happens in very close races, and it is the losing party that sees problems with the system. And, you know, the illustration of that, you've seen what Donald Trump said right. about his election. Right. But honestly, uh, imagine 2024 when Donald, if Donald Trump were to, to be declared the winner of the presidency, uh, I think Democrats are going to find their own sort of Trumpian playbook to attack the validity of the results. And that's that's the problem that, we, that we've got. Yeah, I think that's that's a problem in a nutshell. It's, uh, you know, Trump will play this game if he loses. He'll say the fix was in and stolen election. Uh, Democrats will say the election was stolen if Trump wins. Stacey Abrams never conceded in her race in 2018 in Georgia. It's just whoever's, whichever ox is getting gored, they're the ones who cry the conspiracy card. And the problem is this day and age, and you mentioned this earlier in terms of uh, institutional voting, you know, you're battling one problem here, which is the internet. And the internet is just like a termite farm when it comes to crazy conspiracies. I'm sure you get these like I do, just constant emails from friends saying, what about this and what about that? And it's always some proof of Russian meddling or some proof that ballots were stolen and, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah, it's absolutely true. I mean, I think that there are ways to help that too in, mm-hmm. in sort of some non-Hoover work. Yeah. Um, I spend a lot of time with election officials talking about elections and, and how to make it better. And I think one of the things that election officials did 
uh, really well before the 2022 election, and we talked about this on St. Senators and Salvageable, right. is bring be transparent and, br- and try and bring the biggest election doubters in to take a look at the safeguards that are built into the system long before election day, answer all their questions about um, their perceived uh, worries about the election system, Mm-hmm. And that transparency is really important. And I think it is also really important to recognize that this is not something that's going to get solved on the national level, mm-hmm. that, in fact, this is a community uh, effort. And we've got a project called the Pillars of the Community, right. in which we're going into the most contentious counties in the country, getting the leaders of the community uh, from business, from faith, from education, from civic organizations, get them to meet with the election officials, understand the safeguards in the voting system, and then uh, be to share their experiences with the broader community uh, to, to look at the safeguards and say, we don't know who won the election, but we know that the system that we have tabulate those votes is accurate. I remember, Ben, you did a wonderful uh, one-day conference at Hoover where you invited secretary of states and election officials around the country. And it was great that, first of all, you got the right states there. You didn't get a bunch of boring states where there's no drama. You got you got the ones really in the crosshairs. I just remember sitting there and listening to these guys. It was Brad Raffensperger from uh, Georgia. I remember sitting and listening to the fellow who was representing Maricopa County and thinking, this man might have the worst job in America. Yeah, and, and what is really inspirational about those people is that they may have the worst job in America, mm-hmm. but they recognize how important it is to the democracy and to the country. And they are willing to put up with the slings and arrows and sometimes worse uh, substances to do what they know to be the important job of running good elections. Right. And uh, yeah, actually, you're involved in the Election Official Legal Defense Network. That's a group I started with a fellow named Bob Bauer, mm-hmm. who was my um, uh, political adversary for years and years. But we co-chaired a presidential commission on election administration, mm-hmm. got to know uh, these election officials back in the 2013-2014 mm-hmm. uh, time frame. Then when they came under such harassment, both for doing their jobs and on a personal basis, uh, we formed the Election Official Legal Defense Network to find pro bono uh, lawyers to help them out when they were in legal jams. And we continue with that project that unfortunately is uh, is needed. And Bob Bauer is a Stanford law professor, right? NYU law professor. NYU, I thought he was Stanford, I'm sorry. No. Oh, I was going to take a shot at the stuff. not. He'll, 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 he'll make it up. He'll, he'll step up eventually. Uh, but you've been affiliated with Stanford Law, haven't you? I have. Uh, I taught there with Nate Persley, professor at Stanford, and, and really does terrific work, not only on election administration issues, but technology issues and how they intersect. And we've taught courses together. Yeah. So let's make some news here. If they uh, have a vacancy for a new associate dean for DEI, you're going to take yourself <laughs> out of the running right here and now? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to give you a very Sherman-esque statement on that. Totally okay. unqualified. For that. 
So let's wrap up here, Ben, and I want to wrap up on a maybe not so cheerful note, but if you are following the Republican resistance right now, it's very easy to see something very bad coming down the road in November 2024. And it goes something like this. You have a field dominated by Donald Trump. Donald Trump gets the nomination. As I mentioned, he has that 25% approval in that one poll. He's not going to get elected with numbers that rotten, even if Joe Biden's numbers are similarly anemic. So Trump's not going to win. Second, you look at the Senate races. And the question of 2024 is going to replay a 2022 where weak MAGA candidates win in states like Montana, very potentially winnable races, but losable now because you have run weak candidates because you have a divided primary party. And between all that, Ben, a question of just why the party is not kind of better organized and just more deft in its thinking and more mobile. Good example being when we did those interviews last summer, we did it before the Dobbs decision. Now, the Dobbs decision came out and all hell broke loose on abortion. And guess what? Republicans, Ben, for the most part, were flat-footed on what to say. You know, Glenn Youngkin did have an abortion position, but most Republicans didn't know where they were on it. And the Supreme Court goes after abortion again this year, which they might, given the recent rulings. Here are Republicans, once again, having to have some sort of message on abortion. I just don't understand it, Ben, because the party has been talking about undoing Roe v. Wade, not for you know months, years, but decades. You would think that the party would just kind of have a plan of attack as to what to do post-Roe, but no. You know, it is a phenomenon that we are much more tactical than strategic in our in our politics these days. Yes. And it also goes to the question you asked earlier about who is the Republican Party? Who's the establishment of the Republican Party? Right. And we struggled to answer that question. Uh, and I think the result is uh really following a cult of personality these days in the form of Donald Trump, who certainly has very uh, particular views about subjects. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it's always been a little bit hard for him to articulate what the overall uh, strategic vision is, what the plan is, um, what he would do with another administration, actually what he accomplished in the last administration has been spelled out very articulately by a number of people, but not by Donald Trump, interestingly. Right. And he's talking, you know, the leader of the party, the person with the, the most support, is talking much more about the past and what he perceives as election injustices than the future. And so what you are describing is very much symptomatic of complaining about the past and not looking to how you're going to make people's lives better with conservative principles, policies down the road. Okay. So if we want to call this a rebirth, reboot, renaissance, choose your favorite R word here. Where does it start? Uh, I think it starts in a, in a couple of places. Uh, again, I'm a big proponent of sort of uh, local action as opposed to national action at this point. So you mentioned those key Senate states. You can also identify 30 to 40 key House districts where people are start articulating what they see as a Republican uh, vision for um, for the future. Uh, I think it you know, look, I do think that even if Donald Trump is not the nominee, the notion of Trumpism uh, is, is much more. Is still going to be very prevalent in whoever the nominee is, so that uh, it, it's going to start a little bit 
with having to take some electoral defeats to see that the current path is not a good one. Okay. Sounds like preview of the 2028 presidential election. I believe that will be the, uh, the inflection point. Okay. Ben Ginsburg, I enjoyed the conversation today. Thanks for all you're doing for Hoover Institution. It's really an honor and a pleasure to have you on campus with us. Thank you, Bill. The honor is all mine. Thank you. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's H-O-O-V-E-R-I-N-S-T. I mentioned our website at the beginning of the show, which is hoover.org. Uh, go there and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report. It keeps you updated on what Ben Ginsburg and his Hoover colleagues are up to. Also, sign up for Hoover's Pod Blast, which delivers the best of our podcast each month to your inbox. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.